On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Here's what we're going to do today as well. Jesus preached a, a long sermon, and it was written down, transcribed, and we have the summary of the transcript with some of the portions of that sermon given to us in Luke chapter 6. We looked at the first half of Jesus' sermon last week. We'll look at the second half this week. And Jesus had a large crowd. And to give you some idea of the setting, let me show you the uh, rough location where Jesus was teaching, Luke chapter 6. It's uh, just up from the Sea of Galilee, rolling hills up into some very beautiful farmland. And it was in this rough area, uh, tradition tells us actually, uh, in this area that Jesus preached the sermon that we will study today. So you need to envision this. Jesus has been preaching and teaching in small towns, synagogues, 50, 100 people living in those communities. They would come out to hear Jesus preach and teach, and now his fame has grown, and many multitudes, maybe thousands, are coming out to hear him preach and teach. And so they're walking multiple days' journey. They're coming from long distances, and they're all sitting on the grass as Jesus is preaching and teaching. And so we're going to look at, frankly, more scripture today than we should. This should be five sermons instead of one. Uh, but we want to get through Luke before we see Jesus face to face. So we're taking large chunks and going to hammer the book through. And so what we'll look at today are a series of principles that are going to be, I pray, I hope, I trust, used by the Holy Spirit in your life. These principles come from the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of Scripture and the teaching ministry of Jesus. And he will then take some of these principles for you and he'll highlight certain principles. He'll bring to mind certain people. He'll bring to mind certain things. Even if you're not a Christian, don't resist or fight those. Go with those. Those are God's gift to you. And so I give you principles from Jesus' teaching and the Holy Spirit will give you the particular application of them. The first of which is this. Forgiven people should forgive. Jesus says it this way in Luke 6, 37, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned, forgive and you will be forgiven. Even if you don't know any Bible, you know this verse. All right, this is the American non-Christian life verse. Hey, thou shalt not judge, right? And, and people will use this verse all the time. And what's amazing is in using it, they're judging you, which I think is curious. Hey, I think that's wrong. Are you, hey, thou shalt not judge. Are you judging my judging? Because that, that's a party foul right here. That's, you're judging my judging. That's very judgmental of my judgmentalism. Uh, and so there's really no way around judging. But what does Jesus mean by this, that thou shalt not judge? Now, in one regard, I think what he is talking about is that person who lives their life as a judge, they're always judging people. This is the moral cop, the neat nick, the nitpick. This is the person who is always criticizing. They, they take that disposition of a critic. Some of you are like that. 
you always find fault, flaw, failure. You're always looking for what's wrong and you make sure to let someone know. I have a friend, almost a former friend, they're working on it, that every time the phone rings or I get a text or an email, I just ah, here we go again. Dear Mark, I have a problem with fill in the blank. I know, you do. You don't, I don't get a birthday card, uh, attaboy, nothing. If you say anything, it's bad. That's just how this person is. They have the spiritual gift of discouragement. There's never anything that they have to say that's very encouraging. And I think what Jesus is pushing against is saying, don't be like that. The truth is the Bible is filled with laws that our lives are filled with sin. But if sinners are going to coexist, a couple things need to happen. We need to be humble, prayerful, careful, biblical, merciful, gracious as we approach people so that when we judge them, as Jesus says, it's not in a condemning way. I have no hope for you. I'm done with you. You're worthless. I'm sick of it. We're through. That, that is judging and then condemning. And the truth is, we don't know what God has for people. And just so you know, the job of capital day, capital J judge, that's taken by Jesus. Jesus says in John 5, the father's entrusted all judgment to me. He's the judge. So here's the bottom line. Christians don't decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. God does. Heaven belongs to God. Hell is ruled by God. God decides who goes where. Not me, not you, not us. We don't condemn anyone. What we can do is share Jesus, the truth of the Bible with people, Hey, here's what Jesus says. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So I love you. Here's the bottom line. Jesus says, if you're connected to him, you get to be with him. If you're disconnected from him, you're gonna give an account to him. That's what he said. I don't determine who goes to heaven or hell, but that's between you and him. That's what he said. People come up to me all the time. Pastor Mark, my uncle died. Is he in heaven or hell? I don't know. That's totally above my pay grade. That's not my job. I don't know. I don't know. I do believe in heaven, I do believe in hell, and I do know that it's not my job to decide who goes where. But to tell people about Jesus and let Jesus decide who's in, who's out, that's his job. So he's saying here, don't have that critic, moral cop, negative, difficult, discouraging disposition, and don't just judge people and then that's it, you're kindling, goodbye, and just leave them there. In fact, instead, what we should do is judge people but not only judge people, and we should primarily judge Christians, not non-Christians. A little while later, a guy comes along, his name is Paul. He's well aware of what Jesus taught, and he's got a situation in a crazy church called Corinth. And in chapter five, one guy, we don't know the story, it's either his mother or mother-in-law, but he has a, an intimate romantic uh, relationship. Whatever it is, it's a total mom fail. And then in chapter six, there's a couple Christians who decide, I don't like to work, so I'll just sue other Christians. That'll give me enough money to retire. And so here's what Paul has to say about these two issues in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Here's what he's saying. Look, Christians should judge one another and when it comes to the non-Christians, we shouldn't expect them to act like Christians. So you know what? This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You really gotta get your life together. The more important thing is you need to meet Jesus. And rather than working on a bunch of behavior modification, wanna introduce you to someone named Jesus so that he could change your heart, change your life. And then the issues in your life will get worked out through his grace and his power and his love and his support and his forgiveness. 
So what Paul is saying is this, Christians need to do what we tend to do in reverse. We tend to let Christian brothers and sisters get away with sin, and then we tend to serve as the moral police complaining about the behavior of non-Christians. Paul said, don't do that. Non-Christians don't know Jesus. Talk to him about Jesus. Christians who say they are Christians and do belong to Jesus, we have higher expectations of them. And if they say they believe in the God of the Bible, then we need to hold them to the standards of the Bible. Feel free to judge them. Not in a condemning way, but in a discerning way. Not to destroy them, but to help them, to show them, you're stuck here. I'm here to help. We need to get you out. This is a wreck. And by the grace of God, it needs to change. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints, those are the Christians, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Here's what he says. Dear Christian, you will rise from death. You'll sit with Jesus. You'll be involved in the judgment at the end. And you will assist in the judgment of angels. If that's the case, feel free to keep one another in line. Feel free to show in love, in community, this is a problem, this is an issue, this concerns me, this needs work, this needs to change. And so what he's saying here is that Christians should judge Christians and should introduce non-Christians to Jesus. What that means is we should judge, but not condemn. Judge and then forgive. That's what Jesus is saying here. When he says, thou shalt not judge, don't judge and then condemn. Instead, what he says is, forgive. Forgive. Because it would be hypocritical for us to go to God and say, God, I have sinned against you. And you've sent your son to die on the cross in my place for my sins to secure my salvation. And I come to you, Lord God, asking for forgiveness. And then when someone sins against you to say, I will not forgive. That's hypocritical. If you're getting forgiveness, you need to be giving forgiveness. Now, in saying that, some of you would say, I thought we weren't supposed to judge. To forgive someone, you have to judge them, right? You have to say, you have to determine, you have to discern and ascertain what you said or did or failed to say or do was sin. And so you have to come to a judgment about that. And the truth is, we all believe in judgment. Not eternal condemnation that we're God and sit on a throne, but we all believe in saying, that's right, that's wrong, that's acceptable, that's unacceptable. That's why you'd be very bummed if someone broke into your house, took all your stuff, pulled a gun on you, you called 911 and they said, hey man, didn't you read Luke 6? Thou shalt not judge. Hey, we're not gonna send the cops, that would be judgmental. You say, no, send, send the cops with guns and dogs. And if need be, arrest this person and bring them before a judge because they need to be judged. We can't get rid of teachers. We can't get rid of coaches. We can't get rid of umpires. We can't get rid of referees. We can't get rid of cops. We can't get rid of judges. We can't get rid of courts. What we can get rid of is self-righteous, arrogant religion that condemns people unnecessarily, has no love or hope for them. And what we can replace it with is a desire among God's people to hold one another to a high standard that is biblical Additionally, we can judge one another and say, you know what, that's wrong, that's unacceptable, that's sinful, I do love you, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but I'm here to help and then forgive. See, what Jesus is condemning is moving from judging to condemning. He's condemning, condemning. 
What he's encouraging is to move from judging to forgiving. So let me ask this. I'll give you five questions. Here's the first one. Discuss in your community group or with your family. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? What did they do? See, if you don't forgive them, you'll become a bitter hypocrite. Bitter, that's what occurs to those who are unforgiving. And hypocrite, you're gonna want God to forgive you, but you not to forgive them. And part of it will be an emotional struggle because some of you immediately will say, but what they did was wrong and they never said they're sorry. How can I forgive them? Let me explain this to you. It takes one to repent and one to forgive and two to reconcile. You can forgive whether or not they ever repent and apologize and change. So you can forgive and in forgiving, let me tell you what you're not doing. You're not approving. When you forgive someone, you're not approving. You're not saying, I'm okay with what you did or failed to do. You're not saying that. You're saying, in fact, just the opposite. What you did was wrong. What you failed to do was wrong. And I choose to forgive you. It is also not denying. Oh, it didn't happen. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even remember that. Forgiveness is not denying that sin occurred. Forgiveness is not diminishing it. Oh, it's no big deal. Nobody's perfect. It didn't really bother me. No, it was such a big deal. Jesus died for it. So it's a big deal. It's not covering sin. Forgiveness is not covering sin. You can forgive someone and still call the police and have them arrested if they've committed a crime. I thought you forgave me. I do. Not bitter, not angry, but you committed a crime. So that's justice. And I love you and I forgive you. Jesus died for it and he can forgive you. But just because I forgive you doesn't mean it didn't happen. See, some of you need to understand the fullness of forgiveness and forgive and leave those people to God that ultimately he will judge them. And if they don't repent, he will condemn them so that you can judge them and forgive them and then leave them to his care. Maybe they'll repent and God will forgive them. Maybe they won't and God will condemn them. That's his business. Free your heart of bitterness. Free your life of hypocrisy. And forgive others, just like the Bible says, as God in Christ forgave you. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? What did they say? What did they do? What did they fail to do? I'm under no illusion that this is easy or simple. I know... As a pastor, we have a front row seat for the most painful moments of people's lives. And again, this is a principle, and now the Holy Spirit will give you a name. He will give you a face. Some of you right now are resisting and fighting. Oh, not that. Can we move on? I thought there were more points. Next point. Let's, let's sit here for a moment and let the Holy Spirit give us that name, give us that face. Who do you need to forgive? I feel prompted to even tell some of you through the Holy Spirit that the person you need to forgive is dead. You say, but it's never gonna be okay. You still need to forgive them. Number two, getters should be givers. I don't know if getters a word. I made it up. I do that occasionally. You're welcome. Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
Here's what he's saying. If God forgives you, forgive others. If God gives to you, give to others. That's the way it's supposed to work. Otherwise, we're hypocrites receiving forgiveness and generosity and not giving forgiveness and generosity. And so our relationship with God shows up in our relationship with others and our relationship to our wealth and our possessions and our finances. So let me unpack this. What he is advocating here is what I will call generosity theology. There are two extremes when it comes to money, finances, possessions, and wealth in the Bible. Prosperity theology, which basically says God is a pinata and tithing is a stick. Give him a whack and watch vehicles with rims fall out of the sky. Right? That's, that's my version of prosperity theology. And basically what it is, it's, it's worshiping money, wealth, possessions, and status and using God to give you your idols. Oh, if I pray, if I tithe, if I do these things, then God will bless me and make me rich because what I really care about is my wealth. On the extreme other side is poverty. I don't need to get a job. I don't need to pay my bills. I don't need to take care of my family. I don't need to leave an inheritance to my children's children like Proverbs says. I just make no money and I'm not generous and I live minimally and I, I give minimally. Why? Because I think the less I make, the holier I am. We don't advocate either of those. What we advocate is work hard, work smart, work fair, grow your wealth little by little like Proverbs says, and first of all, see yourself as a generous steward, that ultimately everything belongs to God. And see, my guess is there's really nobody who's gonna hear this sermon that actually functionally believes with this principle, that God owns everything and that he gives to us. So everything we have is a received gift. And we are stewards. We are to then disperse, dispense, distribute the resources that God gives to us in a way that glorifies him and helps others. So if you say, oh, no, 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 no. I worked really hard to make my way in this world. And I would say, God gave us the world. He's a very generous giver. He gave us life and breath. He gave us talent, skills, ability. He gave us intellect. He gave us an education. He gave us a job, whatever it is that we have. He gave us possessions. That everything really does come from God. That our God is a very generous giver. That God gives us his own son. That God sheds his blood in our place for our sins. That salvation is a gift. That the Holy Spirit is a gift. That our spiritual gift is in fact a gift. That our church is a gift. That the Bible is a gift that God's people are a gift, that the kingdom that awaits us is a gift, that no one could ever possibly outgive our God. Our God's a giver. He's a very generous giver. That's why the Bible says, God so loved the world that he what? He gave. We know God loves us. He's a giver. And generosity theology is, as God gives to me, I give to others. I give to the poor. I give to the church. And the attitude is not, God, how much of my money do I have to give you? God, how much of your money do I get to keep? It's assuming that the first fruits, off the top, they belong to those things that God deems to be meritous. And what he says is, for those who are generous stewards, for those who give, that's what he talks about, give, right? Give. For those who do give, God likes to give more to them. This is not prosperity theology. Oh, so if I give, I get more? It's not a, it's not a Ponzi scheme, right? 
God may even increase your income, not to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving. What he's saying is this, if God can find a faithful steward, he'll give him a little. If he's a good steward, he'll give him a little more. He's faithful, give him more. And isn't that the way you would work? Let's say you were very affluent. You met someone and you said, okay, I'm gonna give you this money and this percentage goes to the poor and this percentage goes to the church and this percentage you can spend. And they actually did it. They came back, said, okay, I did everything you asked me to do with the finances. Say, good, I'm gonna increase what I entrust to you because you're faithful, you don't steal from me. The person who came back and said, I know you gave it to me, but I forgot about the poor and I never made it to the church and I blew the rest and I need some more. You'd say, I, I, I don't invest that way. I don't put water in a bucket with no bottom. I'm not gonna waste any more resources on you because you're not a good steward. And so what he's talking about here is that if you're a faithful steward and you give as God wants you to give, God tends to, he doesn't have to, and sometimes you get the reward in this life and sometimes you're storing up your treasure in heaven. So you gotta wait a while to see your reward. But one way or another, God likes to give to those who are giving so that they can give some more. And he uses this analogy, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into your lap. Say, so what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you an analogy, modern day analogy. Okay, have you been to the grocery store and seen the glorious aisle filled with all the chips? It's an amazing place, all of these chips, just all kinds of things, ending in Edo's, Cheetos, Doritos, Fritos. It's just Edo-tastic. It's amazing what's there. And there's also potato chips and sun chips, and it's amazing. And you, you notice how big the bags are. They're huge bags, you know, like half your size, unless you eat a lot, and then like a third of your size. And have you ever purchased one of these bags of chips and they're full? You open it, you smell it, oh, that's chiptastic. Then you look in, it's not filled with chips. There's a couple chips at the bottom. It's filled with air and lies. That's what he's talking about. I'll explain it to you. The way you would buy grain or corn in that day, you would bring your bucket or you'd bring your bowl or you'd bring your container to the market. And you would say, okay, fill it up with grain or fill it up with corn or whatever it is. And they'd fill it up and say, okay, give me your money. And you'd say, no, no, shake it up a little bit. And stomp it down and then let it all settle. And then put some more in there and then shake it again and stomp it again and then pour some more in there. And eventually when it's totally full, then I'll pay. But until then, it's just like a bag of chips. And next time you go to the grocery store, you should, should open the bag of chips when you are at the checkout line and say, I'm missing chips. I need more <laughs> chips in my bag. I would like it to be pressed down, shaken together, running over, and I would like some on my lap. <laughs> That's where they're going to end up anyway. So... And that's what he's talking about, that if you're a generous giver, God may in fact give generously to you so that, you know, his provision is full and it's overflowing. And the lap here is talking about actually having extra to put in your pockets. See, and I know we're in the middle of a financial downturn and people are struggling and I'm well aware of that, but you know what happens? 
God, as soon as you give me more, then I'll give anything. And God would say, I've already been given and you haven't done anything. So how about if you prove faithful with what I've given you? And then we'll talk about me helping you out some more. I love you. I, I feel about the church like I do my kids. You see problems, you work on them, you hang in there, you don't threaten them, you don't freak out, you don't get mean, you don't get mad. Just keep praying, keep talking, keep working on it. So we're gonna keep working on it. For those of you that have been faithful, praise be to God, thank you. For those of you who haven't, what does Jesus say? What's his word? Give. Say, so what's that mean in Greek? Give. <laughs> Somebody say, how much? Ask him. Right, ask him. Ask him what it is that you are to give. We're not gonna set a percentage and be legalistic. We're just gonna say, if you're a Christian and you've received and everything you have received is a gift from God, God doesn't give just to us, God gives through us. That's what a, a gal today told me. It was a cool conversation. She said, I'm a brand new Christian. And she said, God's given a lot to me and now I've realized he's giving through me and I'm getting to love people and serve people and help people and be generous. And she says, this is a really fun life. I like doing what God's doing and doing it with him. That's what we're talking about. So forgiven people should forgive and getters should be givers. And again, this is the Holy Spirit looking at you, working on your hearts. Ah, what does that mean for me functionally, practically? Number three, he goes on to say that leaders should lead themselves. And let me preface this by saying, People like me are leaders, but to some degree, we're all leaders. You're a mom or a dad, you're leading. You're a coach, you're leading. You're a teacher, you're leading. Community group leader, service team leader, obvious leader, deacon, elder, obvious leader, husband, father, obvious leader, mother, grandmother, leader. Everybody's leading someone. Everybody's teaching someone. And before we can teach anyone or lead anyone, particularly those of us who are entrusted with offices of leadership, we need to lead ourselves. Luke 6, 39 through 42, who also told them a parable, which is a little story to illustrate a point. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Technically, yes, but it's gonna go really bad. <laughs> Will they not both fall into a pit? Yeah, it's only a matter of time. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, right, the lumber yard that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. There's the word. That's the big idea. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will be able to clearly see and take out that speck that is in your brother's eye. Here's what he's saying. We're hypocrites and blind guides. And I know some of you are like, no, I'm special. When I went to Sunday school, they said I was like a snowflake, pure white, I'm one of a kind. No, you're a blind guide and a hypocrite. And they lied. And so they're blind guides and hypocrites too. And the way it all works is we're all blind to our own blindness. We're all blind to our own blindness. And some of our blindness is self-selected. Like, do you see that? No, nope, I do not see that. Because you closed your eyes. And we're all hypocrites. And the hypocrite, uh, by definition, here's a hypocrite, according to Jesus. You've got a big issue in your life and you're gossiping, quarreling, nagging, neat-nicking, nitpicking, moral copping, judging about someone who's got a much more minor issue in their life. Right? And what he doesn't say is, 
oh, well, you can't deal with anybody else and their sin and their issues. What he says is, hey, first things first, deal with your own lumber yard. Deal with your own lumber yard. Because I'll be honest with you and say, it's not always this way. And I don't want to broad stroke. But some of the worst marriages I've ever seen are marriage counselors. I mean, I'm serious. Uh, some of the worst fathers I've seen teach as pastors about fathering. Their wife and their kids are nothing more than just props. They're not really objects of affection. Sometimes it are, I've seen it, all this is gonna be controversial, but sometimes the most disturbed people go get counseling degrees, not just to help other people, but because they're trying to figure out their own issues. It's not bad to go get a counseling degree, but before you start counseling anybody else, you gotta figure out your own stuff. Before you start working on their marriage, you gotta get your own marriage under control. Before you start telling people what to do with their kids, you need to get yours out of rehab. First things first. You gotta deal with your own stuff first. And what happens is it's easier to see sin in someone else's life than it is your own. And it's easier to tell them what to do than the hard work of doing it yourself. That's by definition hypocrite. So let me say this. All of us to varying degrees are blind guides and hypocrites. Well aware, more aware of everyone's sin in their life, far less aware of our sin in our life. And the more religious you are, the worse it's going to be for you. That's the way that it works. And so what is Jesus' answer? He says, well, students become like their teachers. So you gotta be careful who you pick to follow. What that means is be very careful to pick a church. Be very careful to pick friends. Friends that you say, I welcome you to speak into my life and give me counsel. Be very careful what books you read for instruction in life. Be very careful what podcasts and blogs and tweets and RSS feeds and magazines and television shows and radio talk programs that you consume because when fully trained, you'll become like your teacher. And if they're blind, you'll share their blindness. If they're hypocrites, you'll share their hypocrisy because as Jesus says, when fully trained, students become like their teachers. It's very important that you decide who to listen to, who to follow. It's the only way to deal with your blindness is to find people who aren't blind where you're blind and have them love you enough to judge you, back to my first point, and to help you to see these are issues and areas that you really need some work. Additionally, you need people who are not hypocrites, who condone your lifestyle and participate in it where it is sinful. You also need people who are willing to lovingly confront you in community and say, you are a total hypocrite. You freak out on people who do this, but here's your issue. And again, all of this is principle. God, the Holy Spirit will now name it for you. Don't think about your friend. Don't think, oh yes, they really need to hear this sermon. This would be very good for them. First things first, before you counsel anyone, deal with your own stuff. I mean, I'm continually shocked at the horrible husbands who wanna counsel men on marriage. I'm continually shocked at the horrible fathers who wanna counsel men on fatherhood. It's amazing. Even in the pastorate, even in counseling. Same is true for women. 
Women who quarrel, argue, dishonor their husband, yet want to tell other women how they should live their life and how they should organize their home. This is what we do. And to some degree, we're all hypocrites. And here's the truth. Sometimes the the myth is laid out there. You should never judge anyone. Well, we have to, if we love them, diagnose what's wrong in their life in a non-condemning, but in a convicting way. And additionally, if we really love them, we need to not follow them. We need to rebuke them and say, I love you. Stop giving me advice. I'm not asking for it. I'm not looking for it. And the truth is we all see a lumber yard coming out of your head and that should probably be your first priority. And if you do that and someone is humble, they'll thank you. And if they're arrogant, they'll bristle. Proverbs says, rebuke a wise man, he'll thank you. Rebuke a fool, he'll hate you. You don't know who someone is, wise or foolish, until they don't get their way, or you point out their lumber yard, or you show them their blindness. But the truth is, it's not just Christians who are hypocrites. Non-Christians are hypocrites too. And non-Christians love to throw that law. Oh, you Christians are hypocrites. And so are all you non-Christians. Right, I'll give you one example that I think is funny. Back to my previous point. The, according to USA Today article a few years ago, the least charitably generous city in the United States of America is Seattle. See, here's our deal. We are cause-oriented. What about the poor? What about low-income housing? What about single mothers? What about homelessness? What about the needy? Somebody else should totally do something about that. That's Seattle. (laughs) That's Seattle. Are you going to do anything? Well, hey, man, thou shalt not judge, right? I mean, here we go again. And so we're all hypocrites to varying degrees, and we're all blind in varying ways, and we need each other to point out our blindness and to help us. Who do you need to forgive? How is your financial giving? What log is in your eye? Third question. What log is in your eye? Say, yeah. Yeah, this is a big issue. I've not really dealt with it, repented of it, and put it to death. Sort of culminates then in point four. Good trees should produce good fruit. Luke 6, 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, Jesus here is confronting one of our most preciously, deeply held cultural myths. We're all good people and sometimes we do bad things. You ever seen someone do something horrible and it's on the news? Happens all the time. And then everybody gets on there like, they're just a really good person. I mean, yeah, they murder people, but deep down in their heart, they're golden. Really? Seriously? See, because there's this deeply held lie, this myth It's very pervasive and powerful in our culture that, yeah, the world has got some corruption and I've got a little corruption, but deep down in me, there's purity. There's goodness. No, that's blindness to our blindness. That's self-selected blindness to our 
depravity and corruption, that we, we inherit a sin nature, that we are sinners by nature. It goes all the way down to the roots. And what Jesus is saying, you can't say good tree, bad fruit. That doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, that's a fantastic apple tree. And all it produces is grenades. Really? It doesn't seem like a fantastic apple tree. Oh, it's a very good apple tree and produces grenades. Don't pick them. Really? That's a very good person. They just produce wickedness, but they're a very good person. That's insane. That's crazy. But it's a deeply held myth and some people perpetuate it, even about their own kids. The kids are horrible. Oh, they're just a little angel in their heart. No, they're not. They're evil. <laughs> and I see, I see girlfriends do this with their boyfriend. Oh yeah, he's drunk, unemployed, can't find his pants and hits me. But you know, deep down, he's a winner, winner, chicken dinner, total sweetheart kind of guy. That's who he is. No, he's not. He's Satan way down deep in the roots. He's just a bad guy. Oh, but you know, if, he, if we just loved him and cared for him and enabled him, no. What, worship him as God and let him do it? No. And here's what Jesus is saying. We don't need behavior modification. We need regeneration. That's the biblical doctrine. You don't need to become a better person. You need to become a different person. What he's talking about is uprooting one tree. It's like that one's worthless. It's a bad tree. It's bad to the roots. It has nothing but bad fruit. And then God replants us in Christ as a whole new tree. New creation in Christ, new person, new heart, new mind, new will, new emotions, new life, new appetites, new passions, new pleasures, new affections, new person. Some of you would come to church and say, give me steps to become a better person. And you'd be into pop psychology, self-help, self-esteem, do these four things, don't do these three things, follow these 27 steps. First things first, life change is good. If you're an alcoholic, don't be an alcoholic. If you're a drug addict, don't do drugs. If you're a sex addict, we don't want you to be addicted to sex. If you've got a chronic gambling problem, you need to stop. If you're running yourself into debt and overspending, yeah, you need to get that under control. If you're a glutton, whatever it is, yeah, we want that behavior to stop. But God wants far more than just changed behavior. He wants new people. And Jesus uses the language of the heart. The heart is the seat, sum, center, essence of who you are. The Bible uses that word not of the literal organ, but of the metaphorical center. And Jesus is saying, life comes out of the heart. Words come out of the heart. Motives and deeds come out of the heart. And the old heart, the Bible says, the heart you get as a descendant of Adam is a heart of stone. It's hard-hearted toward God, stubborn, rebellious, defiant, foolish, and dead. And when you become a Christian, God takes out the heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh, not a perfect heart, but a new heart, a heart that is by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, increasingly made to be more and more and more like Jesus. And God doesn't want you to do better or try harder. He wants you to be uprooted, replanted, born again, regenerated, new heart. 
This is where Christianity is different than every other religion. Some people say, well, Christianity teaches some of the same values as other religions, true, and none of them provide the power to obey God. Christianity says, God changes us at the deepest level and gives us the Holy Spirit to live by his power. So God doesn't just tell us what to do. He lives a life through us. And it all starts with coming to Jesus. So that's what I would tell you. If you're not a Christian, you say, I don't know how to get my life together. And some of you may say, my life's not out of order. It's going pretty good. You're proud and arrogant and independent and that's sin too. And what you need is to come to Jesus. So if you're here trying to figure out how to get your life together, let's not worry about the behavior just yet. Let's get you connected to Jesus and he'll change you from the inside out instead of trying to make behavior adjustments from the outside in. Give your sin to Jesus. He died for it. He rose for it. Receive from him a new heart and a new life so that you can be a good tree that produces good fruit. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, patience, peace, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the stuff that Galatians talks about. I'll give you one analogy, one illustration. It was phenomenally encouraging this week. I went to the University of Washington, spent the day there. There was this wonderful, cool, awesome gal who just absolutely encouraged me. She said, Pastor Mark, raise your hand. Room of people, leaders. She said, "Uh, I've got a ministry to gals. And she said, my ministry comes out of the fact that I lived a certain life. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever it is, I'd get dressed up, I'd go out, I'd get drunk, and I'd let guys destroy me, and then I'd come home and cry, and then I'd do it again. And I did it week after week for I don't know how long, a year, two, three years, whatever it is. And she said, I don't do that anymore, and I have a heart for girls that are like that, getting all dressed up and drunk and abused. So I tell my story and they come to me and they want me to pray for them and talk to them and help them. And so I need a lot more training in biblical counseling. Fantastic. I mean, she's brave, she's bold, she's being honest about her life. Fantastic. She got baptized here at Easter a few weeks ago. So I asked her, I said, what do you tell them? She says, here's what I tell them. I love the Holy Spirit because he just changed me. That's a great answer. She said, what I used to do, I don't wanna do that anymore. What I used to enjoy, I don't enjoy it. The trap I was stuck in, God got me out. The enslavement that I was beholden to, I've been set free and redeemed. She said, I'm a new person. I don't think like I used to think. I don't act like I used to act. And it's not me, it's God. The Holy Spirit just changed me. And she said, now I'm telling everybody that the Holy Spirit changes people. Great. I said, how long ago did this happen? She said, two months ago. Two months ago. Unbelievable. And that's what Jesus is talking about. All right, she didn't come to church looking for religion saying, I have a really bad apple tree. How do I duct tape oranges to it? She walked in and God said, new tree. All the way down to the roots, New person, new life. You get to start over. That's our God. That's our God. So let me ask you, fourth question, how's your life going? What kind of fruit are you reaping? Is it destruction, death, folly, foolishness, independence, selfishness, self-righteousness, pride, despair, 
Or is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Some of you may not even be Christians. Some of you may be religious people, spiritual people, moral people, but you may have never come to Jesus and had him give you a new heart. So you need to go to Jesus tonight in prayer and literally just ask him, Jesus, give me a new heart. Before I can change anything, you need to change me at the depth, seat, sum, center, essence of who I am. Lord Jesus, pull up my old life by the roots and plant me in you. He will, he does. Some of you, that explains your whole life. That's why you have so many problems. You're trying to live the Christian life without Christ. And it's not even living the Christian life. It's Christ living through you. And he sums all this up in this great and glorious way. Number five, truth plus obedience equals a rock solid foundation. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Jesus says, and not do what I tell you? That's a good question. You're the king, you're the boss, you're right, you're perfect, you're true, and I disagree. What? With him? Seriously? Every time we sin, that's what we're saying with our actions. Everyone who comes to me, so my first thing would be, you've got to come to Jesus. Would you come to Jesus? Please come to Jesus. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, that's truth, and does them, that's obedience. I will show you what he's like. And Jesus has a great analogy. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Here's what he's saying. There's two ways to build a house, with or without a foundation. And a foundation that is set on rock will be fine. A house without a foundation or that sets itself on shifting sands, it is only a matter of time before trouble comes and that house is destroyed. That's why if you go right now to the bank and say, I would like to buy a house that has no foundation and is on the beach, you will not get a loan. You will get a chuckle, but not a loan. It's only a matter of time before that house ceases to exist. And here's what Jesus is saying. Trouble, strife, turmoil, difficulty, hardship will come. You will lose your job. You will get sick. You will have trouble. It's what Jesus says. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what he says. So don't set up your life in such a way and say, you know what? Everything will be fine as long as nothing goes wrong. Something's gonna go wrong. That's what he's saying. A storm will come. Hardship, trial, strife, something's gonna hit. And some of you don't pay any attention to the foundation, what you're building your life on. First principles, your church, your friends, your theology, your doctrine, your relationship with Christ, your prayer life, your Bible reading. And so what? Storm comes, you're floating down the river trying to put a foundation onto the thing. It's a little late in the day. We love you. We want good for you. And the truth is, it's your life. You can blame other people. You can excuse yourself. You can pass the buck. You can blame it on your parents. You can, you can rail against culture. You can hope that some elected official just starts giving away free foundations to everyone. Or you can, as an adult, take responsibility and say, my life, my foundation, my responsibility. 
Is your problem a truth problem or an obedience problem? Is your problem a truth problem or an obedience problem? Jesus says, everyone who hears my words, right? That's the truth. Jesus says elsewhere, sanctify them by the truth. Your word, scriptures is true. Is it a truth problem? You're not getting a lot of truth. You don't read your Bible. See, truth comes through the scriptures. Truth comes from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Truth can also come through godly friends who give good counsel. People who are willing to show you where you're blind and hypocritical. Truth can come through reading good books to listening to good teachers. Do you have a truth problem? Meaning you're not inputting a lot of truth. It may be information, but it's not truth. You're reading garbage when it comes to how to fix your marriage, your life. Is it a truth problem? You're believing lies, things that are inconsistent with scripture. Is it a truth problem? God says one thing, but somebody else says another thing and you're conflicted. Let me give you a piece of good advice. Don't believe everything you think. Okay, meditate on that. Don't believe everything you think. If you're prone toward blindness and hypocrisy, some of what you think is wrong. So you're gonna need somebody to put truth into you because you've got some folly and error. Is your problem a truth problem or is your problem an obedience problem? You know what to do. You just don't do it. Jesus, James' brother, echoing this, says in his epistle, bearing his name, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And let me say, counseling can be hard, but pretty much counseling is asking three questions and enduring awkward silence. I'll tell you what they are. People come in to me. First question, what's the problem? Then they tell you, and you leave an awkward silence. Then the second question is, what has God told you to do? And they'll usually tell you. And then you leave an awkward silence. And then the third question is, are you gonna do that? And then you pray. That's counseling. <laughs> it really is. I've done a lot of counseling. That's most of it. I'll give you some examples since we're here. Um, oh, what comes to mind? A guy recently, <laughs> He's, he's really big. He's out of shape. He's obese. He's going to kill himself. Comes in. Look at him. What's the problem? He's like, well, I'm big. Mm -hmm. Okay. Agreed. What has God told you to do? Hey, you know, I've been praying about it and reading about it. And I think food is an idol for me. And I, I think God wants me to eat less and exercise more. Okay. Sounds good. Are you going to do that? He says, <laughs> I'm praying about it. Really? Praying about what? Whether or not you're going to do it? Okay, just so you know, you're not going to get smaller praying about it. You get smaller obeying it. He actually asked me, he's like, is there any verses in the Bible on weight loss? Um, no, there's not like first and second dietitians, you know. Um, <laughs> I think you need to just eat less and exercise more. <laughs> if that's what he said, do it, because that actually sounds like a pretty good idea. You know, you put acacia berries on your chocolate sundae, but that probably isn't going to do it for you, you know? Talk to a lady. Awesome. She says, we're having some marital trouble. My husband is very miserable. He's depressed. Okay. What'd you do? Just check. Um, she says, well, I nag him a lot. A lot. Okay. Okay, so that's the problem. 
He's depressed and you're nagging him. And then he gets depressed and then you nag him about being depressed, which that didn't help, did it? No, okay. Okay, so what did God tell you to do? God said, when he annoys me, to first pray for him and leave the Holy Spirit a little bit of an opportunity to work on him before I start criticizing him. And then if God doesn't get through to him, maybe then I could lovingly say something. That sounds good. Are you gonna do it? She says, well, I don't know. He really annoys me. Okay. (laughs) Just checking. Send him in. I'll hold him. He could cry. We could read Lamentations, but I I don't have any plan B for you. It's gonna go bad. Gal comes in. Fantastic. Uh, Pastor Mark, uh, I'm a Christian. My boyfriend's a non-Christian. We're kind of dating. It's getting pretty serious, sleeping together, thinking about living together. There's a problem. Okay, what has God told you to do? Well, he told me not to date him. I said, okay, third question. What are you gonna do? She says, well, I'm praying he becomes a Christian. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) (laughs) Could you meet with him? I could, but... But how about if you obey God and then I talk to him? See, this is what we do. We, but, you know, we laugh at people and then the Holy Spirit would right now tell you, ah, you do it too. And so do I. For some of us, it's a truth problem. We, we just, we don't know what we're talking about. For others, it's an obedience problem. We know exactly what we're supposed to do. And some of you would come here and you say, okay, give me a new verse, give me a new sermon, give me a new book, give me a new this, give me that. Maybe what you need to do is just obey the teaching you've already received and God can teach you a few things down the road, but right now you already know what you're supposed to do. So let's knock that out first. So let me ask you, last question, what is the Holy Spirit highlighted? Truth you need to learn or obedience you need to enact. What is it? I don't know what it is. The Holy Spirit knows he'll tell you. He's telling you right now. I trust him for that. So in closing, We want the truth in you. We want obedience through you. If you don't have a Bible, pick one up on your way out. We'd love to give you one. If you want to study, I'll tell you what, you really need community. You're not going to make it 20, 30, 40, 50 years all by yourself. If you're blind to your own blindness and you're a hypocrite to your own hypocrisy, you're going to need some people in community to help get you moving toward Jesus. That's why we have community. Community groups are where we do that. They meet every week, usually following the sermon, doing life together. There are hundreds of them, some all over the Puget Sound, some down in Albuquerque, wherever your campus is, wherever you live or work, we'll find one near you. And today, here's what we're going to do. I told you I got the new doctrine book, 464 pages, about a thousand footnotes. It literally gave me an intestinal ulcer. Um, It's the work that I'm most pleased with. If this is If this is a day you say, okay, that's it. Time for me to truth in, obedience out. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Fill out the card and actually give us the true information. Check the box that says, I wanna join a community group. And if you will covenant with me, you'll start reading the scriptures. If you don't know where to start, start in Luke's gospel, chapter one, keep going. I'll give you a free copy of the doctrine book. Now, don't tell the accountants I didn't get permission. True story. Because <laughs> um, you guys give so bad, we've been getting killed on budget, and I know they'd say, we don't have the money, so I'll just give them away before they find out. So, 
if you will actually fill this out and on your way out, give it to us and say, here's who I am, put me in a community group. We will then make sure you have a free Bible. We'll give you a free copy of the doctrine book and someone will contact you in the following week and we'll help you get into a group because here's what we don't wanna do. We don't wanna just judge you and point out some things in your life that need work and then condemn you and say, that's it, good luck, go do it. We wanna invite you into community. We wanna say, come to Jesus, come to community group, get a Bible, get some Christian material to help you learn the Bible. Let us help you, we love you. Our goal is not to destroy you, our goal is to serve you. Our goal is not to condemn you. Our goal is to come alongside of you. And so if you want a free gift, you'd love to get plugged into a group, there's the offer, there's the pitch. We love you. Get connected, get connected. Father God, I do pray for us as a people individually that Lord God, we would forgive and be givers and lead ourselves and be good trees that produce good fruit with lives and legacies built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Pray as well, Lord God, for those who are not Christian, that you would give them a new heart to live a new life as a new person. Pray, Lord God, for those of us who are blind to our own blindness and hypocrites to our own hypocrisy, that we would not feel destroyed by this message, but compelled to receive the grace that we need to make the changes that we need so that you would receive the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Ask you to stand, take communion, remembering the broken body, shed blood of Jesus in our place for our sins. And we're gonna take some time to sing. And as the Holy Spirit is highlighted, I trust, hope, pray for you some things. This is your time as we sing to work those out together as God's people in relationship.